well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. I'm glad you're with me today. Hopefully, uh, the world is treating you well. It's a little crazy out there, right? I know some of us are dealing with uh, feet of snow. Others, like myself, are wondering why my trees are starting to bud in February. It's supposed to be 83 degrees here in Virginia. I'm not complaining. I would rather have 83 degrees than like 40 inches of snow as a Rob Dorr of the Minnesota Gun Owners Caucus was talking about earlier this week. So hopefully uh, you're dealing with whatever curveballs life is throwing your way. Uh, and I definitely appreciate you being a part of the program today. It is it's a crazy world out there. And of course, you know, if you're a gun control activist, you believe that the only thing that can make the world a saner, safer place is to obliterate the uh, fundamental right of armed self-defense. <clears throat> but if you're watching this program, chances are you think that's absolutely asinine. I know I do. Uh, what's really surprising, though, is that ABC News actually ran a big story uh, touting the success in reducing, quote-unquote, gun violence uh, in one city without actually trying to infringe on the right to keep and bear arms. Yeah, how one city cut gun violence in half and may become a model around the country. They're talking about Omaha, Nebraska, which they say has seen a marked decrease in shootings. And they note, while many lawmakers debate various solutions, restrictions on firearms, increased mental health funding, investment for youth, ABC News recently talked to community leaders in Omaha, Nebraska, where officials have seen a steady drop in reported gun violence over the past 15 years. Police and advocates attribute some of that, ABC News says, to Omaha 360, which is an initiative that started in 2009 by the Empowerment Network that involves nonprofits, neighborhood associations, churches, and local law enforcement. Scott Gray, the deputy chief of the Omaha Police Department, told ABC News it really did help build a lot of trust between the police and the community and just amongst these various organizations. Empowerment Network is the hub because it pulls together all of these different organizations that by themselves tend not to stay connected and more effective. And we'll talk about what Omaha 360 actually does, but let's talk about the crime in Omaha first. As ABC News reports, the number of shooting victims in Omaha, and that includes people who survived, not people who were killed, dropped from 246 in 2009 to 121 in 2022, with the lowest at 90 victims in 2017. Shooting incidents involving an individual or a group from that same time period dropped from 191 incidents to 90. The lowest number of incidents, 77, recorded in 2018. At the same time, the homicide rate, the homicide clearance rate, I should say, in Omaha has uh, climbed to 87%, which is really good, well above the national average. So, Again, murders are down in Omaha over the last 15 years. ABC News reports that uh, average annual homicides in Omaha fell from about 38 per year from 2007 to 2012 to about 28 from 2017 to 2022, which is pretty remarkable given that Omaha, like most cities across the country, did see a spike in violent crime in 2020. Yeah, you had the court closures mandated by COVID. You had the uh, widespread civil unrest and riots, which included uh, violence, uh, unfortunately, in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, so, you know, Omaha is dealing with all of the things that these other cities were dealing with. But at the same time, uh, the rise in violent crime quickly started to come down after 2020. And again, that is a very, very good thing. 
And this wasn't the result of new gun control laws. Nebraska is a red state. Nebraska lawmakers are actually debating constitutional carry right now. It's been a very contentious issue over the past couple of years. So it's not like Nebraska is some, you know, gun control bastion uh, where, you know, uh, lawmakers say, well, we'll just ban these guns over here and we restricted the right to carry over there. And then, uh, you know, look, problem solved. First of all, that doesn't happen. Just look at Baltimore. Just look at California. Um, No, instead, as the deputy chief talked about, this really is, I, I, I don't want to use the word holistic, but it really is an approach that gets to the heart of the most effective ways to reduce violent crime, and that is to deal with the individuals who are most likely to commit these acts of violence, as well as those individuals who, frankly, are most likely to be the victims of this violence. And there is a lot of overlap. So when Gray talks about bringing together these groups, uh, nonprofits, neighborhood associations, churches, and local law enforcement, this is not really a new idea. This is something that can be done, frankly, uh, pretty easily, and it doesn't require new legislation. Um, sounds like it, it, it sounds to me like the basis for Omaha 360 is a program that was run uh, in Boston back in the mid to late 90s called Operation Ceasefire. Uh, and the idea behind Ceasefire was to reduce juvenile homicides. Uh, the police commissioner at the time in Boston was talking about, well, can we just do, uh, you know, we need tougher background checks. And uh, David Kennedy, who's now a uh, professor at uh, John Jay College in New York, who was one of the uh, instigators of Operation Ceasefire, pointed out, look, we're talking about juveniles. They're not legally buying guns. So increased background checks, all these sort of traditional gun control measures where you try to limit the legal acquisition of firearms in the hopes of preventing a criminal from acquiring them, not going to work. And so what they did instead, this group of academics and this group of cops in Boston came up with the idea of identifying the most prolific and violent gangs in the city and sort of ranking them. Um, And then finding within those gangs the most prolific and violent offenders and kind of ranking them too. Again, these folks are known to law enforcement, right? They've got criminal records. They're generally on probation uh, or parole when they're out on the street. But once they identified that group, then it was a matter of not just sending the right message, but, but backing up those words with deeds, right? And so the message is basically this. You're going to stop shooting people. And we will help you turn your life around if you let us. But if you don't, we're going to make sure that you can't hurt anybody else because you're not going to get a plea deal the next time you end up in court. We're going to refer your case to federal prosecutors and you're going to go away for as long as the law allows. Now, again, you have to back that up. That cannot be an empty promise. Criminals hear this all the time. And in Boston, it took a couple of prosecutions before word started getting out that, oh, you know what? They're serious this time. But the juvenile homicide rate in Boston ended up falling by more than 50%. And cities around the country over the past 20 years have replicated uh, Operation Ceasefire, not just directed against juvenile offenders, but again, sort of expanding this out to, all right, who, who is that small core group of offenders who are responsible for a disproportionate amount of violence in our city? Let's identify them. Let's try to get them help. 
Let's try to turn their lives around. We don't want to see them waste their lives in prison or end up dead at 21. But if they will not take the help that is offered to them, whether it's job training, whether it's a GED, whether it's counseling, all of the above, well, we're not going to let this continue. It's not going to be business as usual. We're not going to keep making these arrests. Allow them to make plea bargains. Allow them to return to the streets with few consequences for their violent crimes. It's not going to happen anymore. And, you know, in some cities, the results have been less than impressive. I will, I will be the first to acknowledge that. Um, I don't think because of the strategy involved, but again, we're dealing with human personalities, right? So you can have infighting between some of these various stakeholders. Uh, maybe the community groups are, are fighting for that same, you know, slice of the pie. There is a lot of distrust between, in some communities, between police and the groups that they're working with and vice versa, right? Um, you can have, when politicians get involved and elected officials get involved, that can sort of gum up the works as well. But the idea itself is solid. Uh, and the indications are not just in Omaha, but around the country that Programs like this, which again, seek to stop violent crime by addressing the perpetrators of those crimes rather than casting a wide net over every legal gun owner in the hopes that, uh, you know, restricting or infringing on a fundamental right is somehow going to have a trickle down effect on violent criminals. This works better. It's not just that it's more constitutionally sound, which obviously is very important for all of us, right? But it works better. Fewer arrests overall are typically made, but crime continues to go down because, again, you're not making arrests for ticky-tack little offenses. You're going after the drivers of violent crime in any given community. When those individuals either turn their life around or they're taken off the streets, well, that's when real change starts to happen. Kids can start playing in their front yard again instead of having to hide out in their living room. Um, parents can walk their kids to school. You know, the entire character of a neighborhood can change, not because of universal background checks or a red flag law or bans on so-called assault weapons, but because individuals are dealing with those individuals who are responsible for violent crime. It's not about the inanimate object. It's about the flesh and blood human beings who are willing to pull the trigger. And more importantly, those who are willing to stand up and say, you don't have to do that. But if you keep going down this road, we're going to make sure that you can't do that anymore. So I'm glad to see ABC News actually reporting the story. Now, I will say that uh, ABC News, of course, had to get their little gun control component in there, right? They talked to uh, Thomas Apt of the University of Maryland, uh, who says, well, you know, I mean, this is great, um, but, you know, we also need uh, things like uh, permit to purchase laws and, uh, you know, other gun control restrictions, which honestly, I don't think we do. I don't think those are necessary. I think the uh, besides the constitutional issues, which are real and severe, I think there's a, a pragmatic argument against that, that, again, when you put those laws in place, uh, you're allowing police to sort of pad the rest statistics and say, look, we did something, right? But if you arrest 100 people for carrying a gun or even possessing a firearm without a pistol purchase permit, 
but none of them have violent criminal histories. None of them have been accused of a violent crime. I say that actually doesn't really have an impact on violent crime in any given community. Particularly when the resources devoted to arresting those 100 individuals are not directed against the individuals who are out there committing armed robberies, carjackings, home invasions, or just anger-fueled shootings, right? The, the, the arrest numbers don't tell the story. What tells the story, frankly, of a strategy's uh, success or failure uh, is the crime data. And, you know, Baltimore, Maryland, uh, I'll give you just one quick example. When Martin O'Malley was mayor of Baltimore, at one point, they had over 100,000 arrests in a year. And crime, it was like one in eight residents. Of, well, actually, it wasn't quite one in, I mean, it was like one in eight at the time. And violent crime went up. You know, again, simply making an arrest doesn't solve the problem. Simply putting a law on the books doesn't solve the problem. Dealing with those perpetrators of violent crime and those at risk of becoming perpetrators of violent crime, that addresses the problem in a way that gun control never can. All right, let's turn our attention to today's Armed citizen story, our good deed of the day, and our recidivist report. We're going to start there. I actually got two. So we had this shooting in uh, Orange County, Florida last night. Uh, actually, I guess multiple shootings, two shootings, one suspect, a 19-year-old named uh, Keith Melvin Moses, who was accused first of shooting a woman who was sitting in her car. Uh, and then that afternoon, when local news crews were getting ready to uh, report uh, on that shooting, he is accused of coming back to the scene of the crime, opening fire on a Spectrum 13 news crew, killing one a videographer, and then shooting a mother and daughter inside their home. Uh, Dylan Lyons, identified as the uh, reporter who was shot and killed, a, another crew member, uh, Jesse Walden, shot and critically injured. Orange County Sheriff John Mina said that um, the suspect was known to police. He said the suspect's not saying much right now. It's hard to know if he was targeting the news crew. He said, again, that'll be part of our investigation. He says, I was out of the scene of the vehicle. It doesn't really look like a news vehicle to me. But then again, there was a photographer there, so that's possible. Mina also did say, however, quote, at 19, he has a lengthy criminal history to include gun charges, aggravated battery and assault with a deadly weapon, burglary and grand theft charges. Now, Fox 35 looked at uh, Moses' adult record, found that he was arrested in November of 2021 on charges of possession of cannabis and drug paraphernalia. Those charges were dropped the next month. Fox 35 says it's unclear if Moses had a juvenile record as those cases are not typically public. I doubt that the sheriff would talk about a lengthy criminal history, including gun charges, aggravated battery, and assault with a deadly weapon if those charges did not exist. So I assume that those were juvenile charges. And again, this raises an issue about the juvenile justice system, which is designed for rehabilitation and not for incarceration, ostensibly. I, 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 I personally, and I'm talking not just about Florida's juvenile justice system, I'm talking about the juvenile justice system overall in this country. I think it does a terrible job at both. We're not incarcerating young violent offenders, and the recidivism rate is higher than what we would like to see here. So this 19-year-old, according to the sheriff, um, 
a lengthy criminal history with very serious charges. But apparently because he was a juvenile when he allegedly committed those crimes, the punishment was almost nothing. And he was out on the street and allegedly able to carry out this attack. Now, the second recidivist report uh, comes from Annapolis, Maryland, where a man was just sentenced to five years probation after shooting a 15-year-old boy last April. Now, keep in mind, again, Maryland lawmakers right now are trying to impose all kinds of new infringements on the right to bear arms because they've been told by the Supreme Court, well, you can't block the average person from getting a concealed carry license. And so now Maryland Democrats are saying, all right, well, we can block the average Marylander from actually carrying a firearm anywhere by making it illegal to do so, right? Meanwhile, this is what's happening not with law-abiding citizens, not with you know uh, the, the folks who jump through the hoops and hurdles to be licensed by the state to exercise their right to bear arms. Now, this is what's happening to, again, to, to violent criminals. Uh, 21-year-old Javon Kalik Anderson, sentenced on Valentine's Day to one sweetheart of a plea deal in Anne Arundel County Circuit Court, nearly 10 months after he was arrested. He pled guilty to second-degree assault and illegal possession of a firearm. And was sentenced to five years of supervised probation for shooting at two teenagers, hitting a 15-year-old boy in April of last year. According to Annapolis police, it was April the 12th. Anderson chased down and then shot at two teenagers in the Eastport Terrace community. An 18-year-old was unharmed, but a 15-year-old was struck and required multiple surgeries. Police recognized Anderson while reviewing surveillance photos. Uh, and talking to an informant who told officials that they were at the apartment complex during the shooting and said that they knew Anderson by the name of Happy, which was a nickname that was also known to police. Anderson was arrested two weeks after the shooting. Before pleading guilty last month, Anderson was facing 15 separate charges in the attack, including, uh, including two counts each of attempted first and second degree murder, as well as first and second degree assault. Back in 2018, when he was 17, Anderson had also been charged with automobile theft as well as a firearm offense. That case was dismissed, however... After the court waived his jurisdiction over Anderson, noting that he was a juvenile. <clears throat> so once again, we see some problems in the juvenile justice system. But now Anderson's a grown man, 21 years old. He was 20 when he was accused of committing this uh, shooting that he has pleaded guilty to. And no prison time whatsoever for uh, young Mr. Anderson, shooting a 15-year-old after chasing him down and five years of supervised probation. Meanwhile, if you are a concealed carry holder in Maryland, where you're trying to get your concealed carry license, Maryland Democrats want to make it a felony offense for you, who has a concealed carry license, merely to set foot into a sensitive place like a gas station, or maybe your own private vehicle. I mean, the priorities are so screwed up, the ideology is so screwed up as well, quite frankly, but uh, the results, sadly, are plain to see. Now, today's Armed Citizen story from uh, South Carolina, where uh, constitutional carry, by the way, also up for debate, as in Nebraska. A uh, burglar arrested. I'm not even sure I'd call this guy a burglar based on the uh, police account. Let's call him an attempted home invader. Arrested after being shot by a homeowner in North Charleston. Homeowner, by the way, 70 years old, says he was... Uh, Hanging out with a, a female acquaintance. They were uh, at a gas station, and uh, 42-year-old John Jones 
apparently started beefing with him. There was some type of argument. Jones tried to put the uh, uh, woman into a headlock, but she was able to get away. And then she and the 70-year-old man walked back to the 70-year-old's home. Jones showed up a short time later, starts kicking in the door, and actually gains entrance to the residence where he is shot by the 70-year-old homeowner in self-defense and defense of his uh, female friend. Uh, Jones survived the uh, gunshot wounds. He spent several days in the hospital, but is now in the local jail. At this point, again, only charged with burglary, which kind of surprised me, but we'll see if uh, prosecutors add to those charges. There might not be uh, physical or surveillance evidence of the attack on the woman, but uh, I I I would be shocked uh, if the charges remain at uh, first-degree burglary. Thankfully, again, the 70-year-old and his companion, unharmed, uh, and Mr. Jones survived his injuries and uh, hopefully will be held accountable in a uh, court of law. Uh, now, on to today's good deed of the day. In the right place, at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing. A uh, teenage girl in Idaho Falls, Idaho, who was able to save a man who had a heart attack at a local gym. Yeah, I think this is the second time in like two weeks we've had stories about people having heart attacks at the gym, which frankly is why I never go. Uh, you know, I, I I feel like I'm much less likely to have a heart attack if I don't go to the gym <clears throat> and just, you know, maintain my svelte figure on natural. Anyway, in this particular case, in uh, Idaho Falls, Idaho, 17-year-old um, named Grace, Grace Ponzer, said she was working out and she was just talking with a friend when all of a sudden across the gym, she saw a guy fall off a treadmill. And she said, it didn't really fully register until I saw him on the ground and it didn't get up. And then a bystander said, hey, I need help. So Grace Ponser, serendipitously, I guess, um, had become CPR certified about five months ago. She had never had to put her training to use, um, but she immediately ran over to the guy on the ground. She said, I rolled him over on his side. He still wasn't breathing. So I rolled him onto his back and started CPR compressions. 911 was called. A certified nursing assistant who also happened to be at the gym um, joined Ponzer, and they were able to alternate chest compressions on the uh, gym goer. After four rounds, they were able to put an automated external defibrillator on the man's chest as well, and they shocked his uh, heart, actually got it back into rhythm. Grace Ponzer says, I got him responsive, and he did have a pulse and was breathing by the time paramedics got there. Thank goodness he was alive, she said. Um, It is amazing. Dr. Blake Wachter uh, was one of the doctors who actually treated the man. And he says, Grace absolutely saved this man's life. Had he stayed on the ground a couple of more minutes, he would not have had such a great outcome as he did. So the AED, he says, was critical. Says survival rates approach 95%. uh, If both CPR and an AED are used on people within the first three minutes of a cardiac arrest. But again, you need both of those components, right? And Grace Ponzer provided... That second, or maybe the first, all-encompassing important component to uh, keeping that man alive. So, in the right place, at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing. Grace Ponzer, we thank you for your very, very good deed. All right, that is going to do it for this edition of Bearing Arms Cam and Company. I want to thank you for being a part of the program. As always, I really do appreciate you being here. And I'm looking forward to being back with you on Monday as well. But don't forget to check out BarryandArms.com between now and then because we're going to keep you up to date on everything that's going on with your right to keep and bear arms. The good, like uh, Governor Jim Justice of West Virginia, saying that he will proudly sign campus carry into law. 
the bad, the gun control bills that are floating around state legislatures, and the the ugly as well, the uh, disinformation and dishonesty that we're seeing coming from the uh, gun control groups and anti-gun politicians. We've got it all covered for you there at Bearing Arms, and uh, I would encourage you to check it out. If you like what you see, also encourage you to become a VIP member. All you got to do, go to bearingarms.com slash subscribe, use the promo code GUNRIGHTS, and you can get a significant savings on your VIP membership. Thank you again for being a part of today's program. Enjoy your weekend. We'll be back here soon. Until then, be well, be safe, and be free.